worshiping with you here this morning. I am super thankful for the worship team and just uh, their hearts and um, their desire to serve us so well in worship and song. Also thankful for Howard and for Howard's prayers um, this morning. Received some encouragement this last week just as I've been preparing and I've been thankful for the, the emails and the notes and uh, just to know that um, people have been praying for me, I am very thankful for that. Um, this morning, um, Brahman Bill had mentioned, Mike, you would serve the congregation really well if you would speak very clearly, especially when you're sharing things of an intimate nature about yourself. So I'm going to purpose and try to do that. My wife also gave me some advice too, which I am thankful for. She said, you know when you're concentrating on things and you get that really intense look on your face? you would do well by the congregation by smiling. So there's, there's a smile. Um, I was uh, sharing that with Howard this morning before the first service and my insecurities at losing my tooth, and he said, you just shove a piece of gum in there, you'd be okay. So here I stand before you with all my faults and my foibles. It is a pleasure to be here with you studying the Word and mutually pursuing Christ's likeness together. As I've been preparing for today, I'm ever reminded of how thankful I am for those that teach regularly, for guys like Brad and for Randy, and for others that have served our pulpit. And Brad, I know you're here someplace. Thanks for being here. Appreciate your ministry. Thanks for trusting us and for sharing the pulpit. This morning, <clears throat> we'll be reading and studying from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Although we'll read through chapter 15 together, the majority of our time will be spent studying the parable of the lost son. To help us better understand Luke 15, there's some foundational thoughts I'd like to touch on. Namely, who's the writer? What is it he's trying to say and who is his audience? Luke, we understand, is a writer as the book is named after him. <clears throat> it's also widely believed that Luke wrote the companion book, the book of Acts. His writing of Acts and his first-hand accounts of Paul's journey would indicate that he traveled with Paul on his many missionary trips. Luke is also mentioned by Paul in Colossians and in 2 Timothy. We know he was believed to be a physician, so we can infer that he'd be considered an educated man. As a physician, we can also expect that he has a genuine love for people and wants to help them. By reading the Gospel of Luke and Acts, we see that Luke is a storyteller, speaking of shipwrecks and speaking of adventure. You'll also note that when you read the books together, that he writes with the same literary style and makes reference to the same person, that being the most excellent Theophilus. Luke also pays close attention to those he's speaking with. The best example would be his account of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 2.19. And he quotes and he says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. He's the only apostle to speak this way of Mary, and it should be noted that it's important for him to make mention of this to us, the reader. This inference would also appear to indicate that he engages with those he's speaking with at a heart level. As for his audience, it's believed he's writing predominantly to Gentiles, to those that he's been ministering to with Paul. 
we spoke earlier of Luke as a learned man. We could also say that based on the gospel of Luke, he is thorough in his writings. Luke's gospel is the longest of what's referred to as the three synoptic gospels, that being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Since the 1780s, the first three books of the New Testament have been called the synoptic gospels because they are similar in structure, content, and wording. It's also important to note that Luke is credited with over a quarter, like 25, 27% of the New Testament writings. That's like 52 chapters, 57 chapters in Luke and in the Acts. That's the most writing of any author of the New Testament. So to recap, we know Luke is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's a physician. He's a companion of Paul. He's a storyteller. And by the length of his gospel, has a genuine appreciation for an attention to detail. Lastly, he makes a note of things that are significant at a heart's level. With this knowledge of Luke, let's read together today's scripture. Luke chapter 15. If you are reading from your pew Bibles, it's found on page 874. The parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And, he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still long away off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the Lord's words. Lord God, Father, thank you that we come together before you and before each other, delving into your scripture, recognizing that your scripture has been inspired by you, Father, that you, through your Holy Spirit, placed your hand upon the apostles and many other authors to write your scripture. Father, so that we may write, that we might read, rather, and that we might understand who you are, Lord, who Christ is, Father, and why he died, and our joy, Father, that we might receive through repentant hearts, Lord, everything revealed through Scripture and through your spoken word. Um, Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that we can read in a free country. Thank you that we can pray openly in a free country, Lord. And thank you, Lord God, um, for your Holy Spirit. Lord God, I claim, Father, that where two or more is gathered, name your spears there also, Lord. Father, my words are feeble. I am but a broken man before you, Lord, and I just desire to be used by you. Father, I pray for your mercy upon me, upon my words. I pray that you, Father, would give me strength to be clear. Father, I pray that your spirit would be upon us to help us understand. Give us wisdom, Lord. Thank you for the grace that we experience through Christ, Father. In his name we pray, amen. Chapter 15, a full chapter. I'm not going to spend the whole morning here expositing the full chapter, but it is important to read the full chapter in the overall context because I'll be touching on different areas here and it gives us um, just an overall view of what's going on. The parable of the lost son is often taught as an isolated parable, teaching one lesson. And it is an important lesson. It's a great lesson. That lesson usually consisting of sin and repentance. Yes, of course, this is true. However, in our time together this morning, I'd like to go a bit deeper and explore this parable not alone, but in the context of the block that it was written in. If you read all of chapter 15, as we just did, you see that this parable of the lost son is bookended between the parable of the lost sheep and the dishonest money manager. 
for our younger eye generation. A bookend is an ornamental support for a row of books. Keep them upright on a bookshelf. There's a bookend at either end. In this case, we have the lost sheep holding up the lost coin and a lost son and bookended by the dishonest money manager. Let me take a small, short sidestep from this morning's scripture and teaching time. I would say that this is Mike's interpretation of the scripture, and I would encourage you to spend some time reading it on your own. Our desire to teach on Sunday mornings is to do our very best to bring the word of God to you and to help you understand it more thoroughly. Most importantly, our desire is set Christ as our source of joy and our example for Christian living. It's important for us when we're receiving teaching to protect our hearts and test what's being said. If you're hearing a sermon and Christ isn't the hero of the story or of the sermon, be extra protective of your hearts. Okay, um, bookends. The bookend, so to speak, starts back at chapter 15, verse 1. And then we see moving into verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes are griping and complaining about Jesus saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The scribes, they're complaining about the fact that Christ has a purposeful relationship with sinners and tax collectors. He even eats with them, they complain. And we see Christ's response to their griping. It's the next four parables. Each parable is tied to each other by words like or in verse 8 and and he said in verse 11. These are conjunctions. Conjunctions are words that join together meanings or phrases. In this case, each parable is tied one to the other for a singular purpose. That purpose is to address a very important lesson to the Pharisees and by application to us as well. And what I humbly desire to show you today is that to draw the lost to Christ and to encourage one another to a deeper relationship with Christ, we need to be sacrificial in our relationships. Emphasis is on sacrificial. Just as God has created us for relationship with himself, and has given his son as a sacrifice to do so, we're called to be in sacrificial relationships with each other. To understand the significance of relationship and how a relationship can break down, let's explore the parable of the lost son. What do we see happening in the parable? Well, we see a younger son, younger, possibly descriptive, to illustrate a lack of maturity both in stature and understanding, asking for his portion of what many would consider is his inheritance. It's not a payment for work. If it was, he'd probably say, give me what's owed to me. It's not an agreement to work for a certain time for a payment as what we've seen in Genesis with Jacob and Laban, where Jacob goes to, um, to Mary and he speaks to his father-in-law Laban and he says, I'll work with you for a time for a reward, and that reward is a wife to be betrothed to me. It's not an exchange of labor. That's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing him asking for my portion that's coming to me. Coming to me would indicate a future tense, most likely at his father's death. As he's asking for this now, before the death of his father, the audience of the time 
would see this as an affront to his father, a very disrespectful request. His taking his share would leave the family with less resources in which to live and which to survive. We also see his selfishness in his lack of gratitude when he receives it. I don't recall anywhere in scripture where this practice is repeated of someone asking for their inheritance before the passing on of their parent. Now for us, step into the narrative for a moment. Have you ever done this? Maybe not specifically with your earthly parents and asking for inheritance now. How about with your heavenly father? Do we use God to get things? We think we're entitled to this or to that, never being satisfied and never wanting him for his provision, never thanking him, rather, for his provision, wanting to only be in relationship with him, worshiping him for what we can get out of it. And when we do get what we want, we withdraw from our relationship. If I was to be honest, I would say I've done that. And back to the parable. So what happens next in verse 13? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. We see in these verses the result of his selfishness and entitlement. There is no mention, as I said earlier, of his thankfulness at receiving his share Ultimately, his ingratitude, his lack of thankfulness, causes him to squander all that he's been given. As I researched ingratitude, I came across an article from UC Berkeley titled, What Gets in the Way of Gratitude? I'd like to share a brief quote. Entitlement is at the core of narcissism. This attitude says, life owes me something, or people owe me something, or I deserve this. In all its manifestations, a preoccupation with the self can cause us to forget our benefits and our benefactors or to feel that we are owed things from others and therefore have no reason to feel thankful. Entitlement and self-absorption are massive impediments to gratitude. You will certainly not feel grateful when you do receive what you think you have coming because after all, you have it coming to you. Counting blessings will be ineffective because grievances will always outnumber the gifts. As we look back at the younger son, we see his elevated self-worth and entitlement is his downfall, and ultimately the root of his sinning against his father and the breakdown of their relationship. And moving on in the parable, a famine comes into land, and he is forced to hire himself out to the locals, feeding the pigs. While feeding the pigs, he says to himself, and we pick up again in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Here we see clearly that all of the material riches he had is now gone. He has absolutely nothing, the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. So far down, in fact, that he has to hire himself out to feed the pigs, not to earn a living, but to be able to eat. It's his depravity and loss that brings him to his senses. The loss of an idol can often reveal our sin. 
I was traveling with a friend, and he pulled out his phone while on the trip. That was back when you could do that. It was the coolest phone I had ever seen, a BlackBerry Pearl. You remember. You know, the smartphone with a lint-catching rollerball, right? Roll, click, enter, click, click. I had to have one. And in my heart, I justified why I needed it. One day, while I was working underneath my car, on my back, as often you do when you drive older cars, while under the car, the phone slipped out of my pocket. I grabbed my precious. I cleaned it up, wiping the screen off, and reached up and sat it on the bumper of the car, thinking it'll be safe. I finished my work, got up, cleaned up, and wet the shut, the trunk of the car. It's not closing, I said. Why isn't it closing? Banging it down a few more times, I realized too late that with each slam, I was crushing my phone. Instant anger. Instant anger. It's like someone had stolen Mike's lollipop. And instantly I remembered what a friend had once said, show me why you're angry and I'll show you your idol. You see, my idol had been removed. And in my loss, God helped me recognize what had become for me. It had become sin. See, we see the same thing with the younger son. The loss of all his possessions brings him to a place of depravity and repentance. Thankfully, we have a heavenly father who, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, just like the father in the story. Picking up at verse 20, and he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put him on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. For me, this is the best part of the story especially the part where it's Christ himself says. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. I like to camp on this for a little while. You see, leading up to the young son's repentance, we see that the father is doing two significant things. He is looking and he is feeling compassion. In looking, he's keeping an eye out on the distant horizon. His hope is to one day see his son return home and into right relationship with himself. He doesn't lose his hope. His compassion fills his heart, leaving no room for resentment. Both of these active words, looking and feeling, allow him to do a significant third action. That third action he does is to embrace his son and kiss him. Each of these actions creates a safe environment for repentance for his son and the restoration of relationship. The son goes on to say, Father, I've sinned against God and you, to which the father replies, let's have a party. My son who is dead is alive. He was lost and is now found. By contrast, imagine, if you will, for a moment that the father, upon seeing his son, chose instead to turn his back on him and walked away without hearing anything he had to say the younger son would have been crushed. 
that would have been extremely, extremely hurtful. In our relationships, the most hurtful thing that we can do is to ignore someone. And yet we do it in our marriages and in our families, and yes, sometimes in our church. When we ignore someone, we're telling them that at this time, you don't exist to me. My hurt and what I'm feeling is more important than being in relationship with you. I'm more important than you. Thankfully, that's not what the Father does. He, like our Heavenly Father, sets example what it means to have a heart of forgiveness towards those that have sinned against us. He looks, he has a heart of compassion, and he welcomes a son into relationship. <clears throat> That's not to say that the father isn't concerned with the son's repentance. The father doesn't open himself up to be abused. It doesn't say that upon seeing his young son in the distance, he has compassion on him, welcomes him, and gives him what remains of his wealth to do with as he pleases. It doesn't say that at all. He embraces him, and here's what he has to say and celebrates that he is now found, both physically and morally. So please don't hear me saying that we should open ourselves up to abusive relationships. It's not it at all. In genuine abuse, we need to set boundaries and possibly to remove ourselves from relationship. What I am saying is that we should take each of these examples that Christ used and be open and not be closed off in relationships, particularly our hearts in relationships. Each parable started with an action word, a, a, wor a verb. In chapter 15, verse 2, we see Christ is eating with Gentiles and sinners. Christ knows that they are sinners and that these are the same people in a little while will yell out, crucify him, crucify him. Yet he eats with them, giving them a taste of relationship with the Father. John 14 says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Christ is creating a welcoming environment of repentance. We see the fruit of this later in Luke 19 when Christ eats with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. As a response to his time with Christ, Zacchaeus declares, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The shepherd in the first parable looks for the lost sheep. He doesn't say, well, there you've gone off now and you'll probably be found by the wolves. No. He leaves the other 99 and goes and searches for him. And when he's found him, celebrates with his friends saying, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. The woman in the second parable seeks diligently the lost coin and when she's found it cries out, rejoice for me for I have found the coin that I had lost. In the parable of the lost son, we see a father who looks for his son and has compassion and welcomes his son. That's what I believe Luke is trying to get across to us in these parables. To genuinely find what's lost, those that are in sin. We need to open ourselves up to be in active relationships. And to do so, we need to be seeking, looking, and having compassion on the lost. We're not limited to those outside the family of God. We also need to seek those within our own church family, particularly those that have sinned against us. I share with you my story of the blackberry. 
Because for me, honestly, that's probably an easy story to share with you. For a guy, it's easier to talk about anger and covetousness than it is to talk about breakdown in relationship. If I was a stronger public speaker and, and a lot more um, <clears throat> in control of my emotions, I would share the burden of my sin of, of singing the great name song and seeing the words of fatherless find the rest and recognizing that my sin has effects on my family. On a daughter who grew up not knowing me, I'd also share my choices at removing my heart and my relationship with a family member. I simply share these things so that we recognize Romans 3.23. It's speaking about me. It's speaking about us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ultimately, our sin is greater against a holy God than it is against each other. It doesn't make sin less painful. However, when we experience the weight of our own sin and the removal of that sin through a forgiving Heavenly Father, we genuinely can have empathy towards others. If we don't fully understand the depths of Christ's suffering and payment for our sins, will be a struggle to have a heart of empathy. The older brother and the Pharisees at the start of the chapter thought that their moral living was enough. They lack empathy because they don't understand forgiveness. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father's killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the brother, the Pharisees, and the scribes want to see the consequence of sin now, that consequence being separation. They want to see the Gentiles and sinners suffer, be outside a relationship, be outcasts. They don't want to see them enjoying a feast, enjoying life, enjoying a relationship with Christ. Just as the older brother wouldn't come into the supper celebration, so the leaders of the day chose to be on the outside looking in. It was easier for them to condemn rather than to seek, to search, or have that heart of compassion towards the Gentiles. What I say next, I say gently, and I say it louder to my own heart. Often we do the same thing. I do the same thing. We want those that have hurt us to experience separation to experience hurt, to experience a consequence of their sin against us. <clears throat> We've taken. We've taken what is God's holy responsibility and only God's in past judgment. Like Adam and Eve, who in the garden decided on their own 
that they knew better than God the difference between right and wrong. We've taken God's place in judgment on one another, dealing out the consequence of sin by removing ourselves, removing our hearts from relationships. I need to feel the weight of those choices of the times I've removed myself from relationship, whether it's a family member, a co-worker, a brother, sister, and Lord. We've all done it. We've justified our choices. Thankfully, we have a Heavenly Father who loves us, has compassion on us. We have an older brother that seeks relationship with us and has given his life so that we won't be bound by these sin choices. Through Christ and the fullness that we have with regenerated hearts, we have the strength to look. We have the strength to seek. We have the strength to love one another in and through relationships, purposing to encourage purposing to build up one another as we mutually pursue Christ together. In closing, as we move toward our fall, small group ministry here at Fort William, I'd encourage you to take a risk and put yourself out there. Be purposefully engaging with one another. Take that extra risk. Engage at a heart level, hoping to be used by God to minister the gospel to one another looking to Christ who sets example what it means to be in a relationship sacrificially. Let's pray. Father God, let's thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for our worship this morning. Thank you so much for the gospel of Luke, for the passion that he has, Father, to write out what he's experienced, what he's witnessed, and what others have experienced so that we may see these words and that we might also learn. Father, thank you that before the cross that we are all brothers and sisters equal, that we are all sinners saved by grace, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we bring ourselves before you, as we repent of our sins, that we would do so in a way that helps us to have grace and mercy towards others around us, Lord God. Thank you for being a good God. Thank you for the ministry of the pulpit, Father, and I'm honored to be here. In Christ's name we pray, amen.